when you don't have a newsroom of 2,200 people, what matters is to be the curator of what matters. And so it's to be able to connect the dots and to be able to look at the world news and make a choice as to where can we add some intelligence. If we get access to credible founders, can we actually do profiles? And there has to always be tension in a profile because otherwise it's just a rewritten press release. It has to be linked back to the zeitgeist. Welcome to the Sidcast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are, and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College, and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, and good old-fashioned conversation. Welcome to the Sidcast. This is Sid Finkelstein, and my guest today is Diane Brady. Diane Brady is a reporter, she's an editor, she's an author, an innovator, an entrepreneur, and someone who has been one of the leading journalists in the world of business for decades. I remember meeting Diane probably around the time that my book, Why Smart Executives Fail, came out in the early 2000s. And she interviewed me and we talked about the book and she was actually very supportive. And I think she may have been at Business Week at that time. She's subsequently been at the Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg Business Week, of course. She's worked at McKinsey. She wrote for a well-known Canadian magazine called McLean's. And she's been at Forbes for a number of years. She's currently the assistant managing editor at Forbes. She oversees C-suite coverage and various communities, as well as editorial teams that runs Forbes Women, Forbes Culture, and really big, the 30 Under 30 franchise, which is a really clever thing that Forbes has done. So she understands people. She understands journalism. She's one of the best interviewers that ever interviewed me. I've been interviewed by a lot of people over the years. And of course, Sidcast, the podcast, is all about me interviewing others. And I've learned a lot from different people over the years. And I certainly have learned a lot from Diane. She's been involved in the transformation of the newspaper and magazine business of journalism from the old way to digital. And she has been a real innovator along the way. She's supported many young writers and she's been a mentor to many people as well. When she was at McKinsey, she hosted their own podcast, among many other things. She's written a book, actually more than one, but the book I want to talk or mention is Fraternity because that really got a lot of publicity and was named actually one of Amazon's best books of the year. She's interviewed all sorts of people. She interviewed Clarence Thomas, who of course is very much in the news because of the various Supreme Court decisions that have been handed down because of his purported great influence on the court. And of course, because of some of the activities of his wife, Ginny, in supporting former President Trump's campaign to overturn the election, despite rather clear and a fair result and overwhelming evidence about that. She's been the center of a lot of things. And so it's fun to talk to her. It's fun to talk to someone who's just so personable and interesting and engaging. And when you listen to our conversation, wouldn't surprise me if you said, boy, I wish I was pulling up a chair next to these guys chatting because I want to get in on this conversation. It's fun. It's interesting. And Diane is just someone who's had her finger on the pulse of what's going on in business and what's going on in journalism for a very, very long time. So without any further ado, let's welcome Diane Brady to the SIDCAST. Welcome to the SIDCAST. Sid Finkelstein with you. And I have a great episode today because I'm talking to my old friend, Diane Brady. Hi, Diane. How are you doing? Great to be here. It's great to have you. It's a treat 
you are one of the first business journalists, I think, that I ended up talking to and working with and learning from. Probably when I published Why Smart Executives Fail, I'm going to guess. Way back. Yeah, it's not that bad. It's 20 years. That's not terrible. 20 years. Yes. I'll admit I've been around that long. Uh, well, that's not a lot. No. So you have had an extensive career in journalism. I just want to start by taking a bit of a historical perspective. And of course, digital is everything now. But besides that obvious element, what really are the biggest differences you've seen today in the world of business journalism compared to when you started? I think the biggest difference and it's such a great question is that every company can be a media company now or thinks it can be a media company. And so I remember the first real signal for that was one one of the companies I covered was GE, as you probably know, Business Week. And it was when instead of responding to journalists, they just put up talking points on their website, basically like speak to the hand, like this is everything you need to know is right here. So it was the disintermediation of me as the purveyor of the story to the audience has changed the mindset around content. It's also changed the relationship, I think, with journalists. So companies or any organization, they're spending a lot more time and energy in managing the journalistic process or basically just the entire communication function. It's surprising if they didn't always do that because it's so important. Well, I think it's creating, it's also creating their own content. And my general philosophy is there's amazing branded content out there, but nobody goes to the Coke news channel for news, right? You know what you're getting ditto for any other company. So it's understanding that fantastic storytelling can take many forms, but it's also knowing that there's something different about being laser focused, I should say, on who your customer is. And in my case, it's the audience and it's, can I make them smarter? Mm -hmm. Can I make them richer? Can I actually make them curious about what's around the corner? How has that changed for you personally and thinking about your job? And it's a very clear definition what you just described. Look, I think that what has driven me my whole career is curiosity. And Mm -hmm. I became a journalist really when I was 15 and it was to meet a band called The Spoons in Canada for any of your Canadian listeners. I know you're Canadian. I am. And I wanted an excuse to go talk to them. And I was shy. And so I started a column called Youth Beat. And it's the best license in the world to slip under the velvet ropes and get to meet interesting people. And that's still what drives me. Great stories, interesting people and being smarter about what's coming. You know, that's actually a big reason why I started to do this podcast a few years ago. It's just fun to talk to interesting people. Some I knew before, some I in regular touch and many I never knew before. It's a calling card. I remember at, gosh, I must have done like 250 video views at Business Week and it was a low bar. It was literally clunky video early 2000s. But just to have that, I was able to get 50 Cent came in, Malcolm Gladwell came in for all his books. It was that I was able to say, hey, let's just meet and talk about what you're doing. And it was surprising the number of people who would say yes. You're probably not surprised by that now, having done this for a while, but people love to talk about themselves. This we know. I discovered that from my own research and my own books when I called people up, including when I wrote a book, you know, Why Smart Executives Fail, about failure. They still wanted to talk about it. It's really kind of amazing. Do you notice a gender difference? Because I actually love to talk about myself contextually if it's useful to people, but there's a certain shame factor. Look, I mean, how do you spot a Canadian? We say sorry to the door that hits us in the face, right? (laughs) So there's a certain cultural aspect perhaps to this, but I do feel like some are certainly more comfortable than others with having the spotlight on them. I think that's very true. Most of the people that I talked to, certainly when you go back 20 years, they were almost all men. 
And of course, they all failed. So maybe we can just say, okay, well, of course. So women never fail. Exactly. <laughs> well, there is Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos, which is kind of unbelievable. I've written a case study that I used to teach my students now and I have to keep updating it because there's more news. I'm going off track, but I do this all the time because that's what a conversation is about. I want to ask you about Elizabeth. You probably covered it. You certainly know a lot about it. And Theranos. And I want to ask you about all these TV shows that are talking about all. Oh, my gosh. You know what fascinated me about Elizabeth Holmes? Those notes that she wrote to herself, those pithy how to be a better you mm-hmm. notes. It reminded me of this character, I think Tilda Swinton and Michael Clayton, where she's in the bathroom. She's kind of plays like a mean spirited. I don't know if she's a CFO, but she's the one who's laying people off and disguising the truth. And that self-talk, that looking in the mirror saying, you're okay, firm handshake, look and eye. It's very female to me. And, you know, it's like a women's magazine downloaded. That's what fascinated me most was the degree to which she had all the insecurities that magazines have thrived and fed on for so long. The contrast, I don't know if you've been watching any of the shows. There's one on Travis Kalanick from Uber that's on Showtime. And then there's the one, I haven't started this one on Apple. Oh, the WeWork? Yeah, but Adam Newman. The three of them, and they're not the only three. We can probably quickly generate a list of a dozen of these characters. They led companies, they became billionaires. The companies blew up. Only one is going to jail. Yes. And of the three you mentioned, I think by far the Theranos story actually makes for good TV. Like there's something not just predictable, but a little one note. You can tell, I hope Adam Newman's not listening, but the WeWorks, it's like we kind of get it. Cult-like figure, it's been, maybe I've just, and Travis is the same with Uber. Like the human drama of it, I felt much more closely with Theranos because it felt complicated. It's the outlier because it's the woman founder that created the unicorn. And there aren't nearly as many. I mean, there are plenty more than people realize, but not nearly as many. Yeah. And lives were at stake. Let's just face it, too. I mean, whether or not we get cold beer at our WeWork is not quite the same as having a disastrous blood result because you're using faulty technology. So there's that. Do you feel sympathy or understanding towards Elizabeth Holmes? What are the best profiles? I've interviewed thousands of people, as have you, and I'm always fascinated with what makes people tick. And the disconnect that we all have between our self-perception and who we actually are, what we say and what we do, the signals we give off, almost like the body language experts. So she's a fascinating case study. Sympathy, no, because I think that when you have the sacred trust of human lives in your hand, you can't BS your way out of that. And so I think the degree to which when journalists started to ask legitimate questions and it became obvious that this was not a groundbreaking new technology, but in fact was gaming the system, you have to hold people accountable for that. So fascination is different to me than Mm -hmm. empathy or sympathy. My MBA students average age is 28 when we do the case study. Of course, by now everyone's heard of Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos. The women in the class, many of them, genuine anger towards her because she's now made their jobs tougher because here's this super high profile person. I know a number of them want to start their own companies and they're going to go to the venture capitalists and the angel investors. And they're thinking, well, now we're going to get the question that probably men are not going to get. Like, are you the next Travis Kalanick? Are you the next Elizabeth Holmes? But that's how they looked at it. Some of them looked at it. Well, there's strength in numbers. I see that. Look, there's no better way to clear a room of men than to put the word women on a panel. It's like I'd love to do panels where it's like, here's five women talking about something. And what do you know? They're not talking about being women. They just happen to be women. It's that you can't be what you can't see. So the scarcity factor, I think, is definitely something. And I've often wondered why women don't get as much money 
why her? You notice she modeled herself on Steve Jobs. She didn't model herself on Oprah or some iconic women. She was trying to basically walk the walk and the talk of the male icons. It's so complicated. We could spend the whole hour talking about gender and and why women are difficult sources as a journalist, right? Why? Because we cover their fertility and footwear in the first paragraph. And who needs that? It's high stakes. It's always higher stakes when you're the only or one of the few. You think it's fair that journalists wrote about what she was wearing all the time? You know they never wrote about that for any of the men in similar situations. I think we do it in an almost unthinking way sometimes. I've met women who always like paparazzi. They wear the same earrings because they know somebody's going to talk about their signature earrings. I remember Ursula Burns interviewing her and she'd say, I do one event for being black a year, one event for being a woman. And then I hope that somebody comes and says, hey, what about this engineers conference? (laughs) As opposed to like she was the CEO of Xerox, like enough already. Is it not enough that I'm here and I'm doing well? Why do I have to talk about something I've grown up with my whole life? Okay, let's get back to Diane. Me? Yes. Prefer asking questions to answering, as you know, Sid. You were at McLean's Magazine, which is like a Time magazine of Canada, I guess, that I used to read as a teenager all the time. Did you? Thank you. McLean's thanks you for that. And then you moved. I'm not sure it was directly to Business Week at that time, but you moved to the U.S. or you were in the Canadian office of the U.S.? I'll give you a shorthand. So I went to University of Toronto and I did the application in 30 minutes, didn't give it much thought, never really saw it. So three universities in Ontario, I picked the one that gave me the most money. And then I got a Rotary scholarship. I went to Nairobi, which was my fifth choice on the list. I had dreams of being at Oxford or whatever. And it was a fabulous experience. The reason I mentioned that is my first real job was to be a speechwriter at UNEP, the UN Environment Program. And I discovered, A, I should never be a speechwriter, except it was this guy, Mustafa Tolba, and his instructions were always like, make it funny, the certificate. <laughs> From there, I went to Columbia Journalism School. So I knew I sort of needed that license in the States to get a job. My first job was McLean's. I graduated in 1990, so it was the recession. My sister basically thought, why don't you guys just rip off U.S. News and World Report? And I had this wonderful boss, Bob Lewis. So I got to start this ranking of Canadian universities. Said all the universities in Canada, I think they still are, are public universities. There are no private universities. The gradations are, if you really like geology, Laurentian's an excellent university. If you love computer science, Waterloo's best. Rankings are fraught with challenge. And when you rank them one to 46, and one of the bottom ranked ones is the school everybody in your office went to, which is Carleton. Don't get a lot of love, but it turned out to be a great franchise for the magazine. And I did that for a few years. My sister got a junior year abroad at Hong Kong University. And I thought, you know what? I'm just going to go to Hong Kong. So I got a leave of absence and went there and ended up working for the Wall Street Journal for four and a half years. In Asia, I briefly ran the Philippines Bureau. And then after that, got married, came to the U.S., and got a job at Business Week because the Wall Street Journal jobs, one of them at the time was actually an online wallstreetjournal.com. I thought, well, that's a farm team. Who wants to do that? So I ended up at Business Week as the Greater New York Bureau Chief, I think it was called at the time, was at Business Week for quite some time. And that's where we met. Actually, when you look at that, and we'll talk about some of the non-traditional journalistic paths that you've had as well, but you've moved around a little bit. Very global, yeah. I've lived on five continents. But also I'm thinking about the financial or the business journalism, magazines, newspapers, Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg Business Week, Forbes Now. McKinsey, I was there for a year too. Yes. (laughs) I mean, is this common? I know a lot of journalists, it seems that's a pattern I've seen before. 
but I don't know that I see it quite as often in other industries where you go from one, in a sense, blue chip to another. You did that. So how did that happen? First of all, I think like any industry, it's a relatively small community of people. We do seem to trade business cards now and then. So I think part of it initially was geography. Like, again, my driving force in life is curiosity. And so that opportunity to live in other countries often meant you move to another publication. That's what got me to the Wall Street Journal. And I also think that as my career changed, I became interesting in different ways to different people. So I spent the vast majority of my life as a writer, loved writing, senior writer or loved writing cover stories. Nothing was better if you say I'm greatness thrust upon you. But I basically was asked to be a senior editor, content chief, whatever that meant at Mm -hmm. Business Week. And turned out I love managing a team. Don't love editing so much, but I love managing creative talent. Think I'm good at it. I like to be the wind at their back. And it's like, I don't care if one person's naked in a face mask writing their story and another person's telling me every dental appointment. Vive la difference, right? There were creative people and turned out I love that. You know, the other thing I think that driven my career a bit is I'm the daughter of a carpet salesman. And I say that proudly and I sold other things at book sales, but I've always brought a commercial instinct to journalism. I don't want to be on the business side, but I love building new franchises. I get no greater kick than to have like a media partnership that would squeeze fortune out the door, beat the Wall Street Journal. (laughs) I love to create media franchises. I love actually shifts in technology. And so that also has helped me move around because it creates more visible successes. You either have visible success as a writer or as a builder. It's interesting you talk about the commercial, like your dad. And so you knew something about business. Over the years, I've met a lot of journalists and been interviewed many, many times. There have been quite a few that have been young, really smart, Princeton or some such place before they went probably to Columbia journalism, if they ended up going that way. But they knew nothing about business and they did not seem to be in a hurry to learn it. It'd been one of my pet peeves. So they'd ask you questions. You'd have to kind of educate them on why that question is not the right question they should have asked, but if they just asked it this way. And sometimes you don't bother because who wants to bother, but other times you do it. Why is that? First of all, I think it's the kind of people who become journalists. Some people really in their heart of hearts want to be a novelist. Yes. Their model is like Hemingway. It's not reporting. You're talking to somebody. When I first got to the journal in Hong Kong, I was doing Hurt on the Street. And the first interview, somebody said P.E. ratio. And I was like, what's a P.E. ratio? And I could feel that they'd knocked 40 IQ points off. He's like, you know what? You tell me once, then I'll know. Now I know what a P.E. ratio is. It's more than just one thing. So in that respect, I don't mind ignorance as long as it goes with intelligence. And as long as people know that I'm a quick study and I'm coming to you for the information, I go back again to curiosity. When they're not interested in business, does that mean they're not curious about what's making the heart and soul of the story that you're essentially talking about? They know how to write and they happen to be in this field because maybe that's where they got a job, but there's no real passion. It's okay, actually, if you want to learn. But what's not business? Like everything is business. I think one of the tragedies in school is that we learn math and not economics. What applied math and applying it to human behavior and what is innovation but philosophy plus physics? To me, the spectrum of business is so broad and I define so much within it that I'm hard pressed to think of much that is in business, but it, definitely the numbers. Yeah. Taking what people say at face value and not verifying it 
is really problematic in business because you can get fed a lot of stuff that's just, say, not accurate. You made me think of, I think it's the devil's dictionary, how they define the creativity or innovation. And it's something like a combination of being a poet and a liar. <laughs> <laughs> it's a dreamer, an inspirer. Let's put that with Yes, there you go. I've written two books. I've written probably three or four. begrudging every time. I've never aspired to be a book writer. They've sort of landed on my lap. And look, I'm happy I did them. I've learned so much. But you'd get to page 40, you'd be like, yeah, I'm done. This is good. You know, <laughs> more bite size. Let's talk about that. There's a book you wrote called, I think, Fraternity. That was a big hit, won a lot of mm-hmm. awards. Were you still doing a regular job and doing this on the side? And why did you end up doing this? So I was at lunch with a guy named Stan Grayson, who was the former deputy mayor of New York. It was the same day that Ted Wells was on the front page of the New York Times as a lawyer for Scooter Libby. So Ted Wells kept winning all these. He's one of those guys who'd show up as like lawyer of the year on American Lawyer and big trial lawyer, Paul Weiss. And so then Stan started saying, that's impressive. You guys are both impressive. Well, we also went to school with Clarence Thomas and Edward P. Jones, who won a Pulitzer and Eddie Jenkins, who was in the Miami Dolphins' perfect season. So it's like, I thought, it's one of those what's in the water stories. I know it's not a Business Week story. I made it kind of mentoring. It was this guy, Father Brooks, who was at the center of it, who'd really recruited them almost like Seven Samurai style and was still alive, was an incredible man. So I waited a year for Clarence Thomas to get that interview. And the minute I went in, Thanks for the interview, Justice Thomas. And his first words were, you people lie. And it's like the Q&A I did with him got more attention than the article. And I was approached in all honesty saying this could be a book. And I thought, yeah, it could be. But once Ted Wells agreed to cooperate with me, I thought, sure, I love them to this day. It's a bit of a Faustian pact, as you can imagine, when people cooperate and they get to read the results because then a lot of the color gets stripped out. But I think it's a testament to John Brooks. But more importantly, it's about a moment in time Martin Luther King died the late 60s where there was this psychic energy that brought a lot of Black men and women into these universities and this moment in history that they felt the burden of. I just thought I was interested. And so I'm glad to have had the experience. I did take some time off and I took longer to write it than I should have. All the usual perils of dealing with creative people like, Brady, I needed that yesterday. Well, it's quite interesting now, as you mentioned, journalists are on endless deadlines. You don't have a lot of time to write whatever it is you're going to write. But a book is very different. I know I could never have been a journalist because I hate deadlines. I dealt with it in my life. I used to write a column for the BBC for several years. Jennifer Merritt was the editor, who you know. Ah, yes, I worked with her. That's right. And she's great. And so I did it when she left. I said I had enough. But what I did is I would typically on Sunday morning get a nice cup of coffee and sit back and have very little planned for most of the day other than, you know, whatever I want to hang out. And that way I had zero pressure. And I would write it and it would be written in an hour because I had zero pressure and was not painful, was enjoyable. And then, of course, you rewrite a few times, which is the essence of writing. But still, the other thing I always did, actually, so we'll talk about writing for a minute because you're a professional writer and I'm kind of a dilettante who writes some books, but is really a professor. These books that I write take years because of just the nature of how I'm doing it. And I'm not that fast. But going on a long plane, great place to write because there's nothing else you could do. There's no time pressure. Oh, there's movies. If you're a mother, it's like the only time you ever got to see movies was in a plane. Like, okay, well, you got me there. Two years ago. (laughs) You got me there. And the other thing that I used to do is when I'm writing, I would usually end or try to end 
when it was going really well, which is kind of weird because if it's going really well, you'd think just keep cranking it out. But that made it so easy to start the next day. And if I would hit a roadblock, it's really hard to start and it could take you a few days or even longer to get back to it. That is the totality of my tips about writing that I'm sharing with a professional journalist. <laughs> I can't give many tips. I love the essay. Like I would love to be an essayist and as I have been, my life is ahead of me, but I love profiles. I love interviews. Writing a book, the narrative arc, I found difficult. I've spent my career learning to almost give just as much as people need and no more. Be judicious with your time. I remember going to Bloomberg and when they said they did 5,000 articles a day, my immediate thought was, well, people pay for the five, but it's got huge value because the ecosystem of Bloomberg is such that those articles on shipping are of huge interest to those who are interested in shipping. So I'm not diminishing the value of that massive newsroom, but nobody needs more content is my general philosophy in life. They need more intelligence. They need more synthesis, perhaps, but not more content. There's a tsunami of content coming at us more and more every day. And yet it's harder to distill the intelligence from it sometimes. Preaching to the converted on that one. <laughs> the word curation or curate became like a gigantic word for everything. I'm not cooking dinner. I'm curating your dinner. That's called cook your own damn dinner, I think. <laughs> it's actually quite relevant when you think about the mass of content that's out there. And how do you figure out what it is? You can't look at Google anymore to tell you. Google will take you to LinkedIn. And that's good because you learn a lot about everyone's in LinkedIn now, it seems. But how do you know what your newspaper of the day should be? And so some people will look at the journal, New York Times, and maybe the FT, maybe a couple of things, Washington Post. That's a lot of work. Other people will look at Twitter and they're following people they think are interesting. Or you could look at LinkedIn Post. First off, how do you think about this as a journalist and what's your newspaper look like on a daily basis? The area that I run is leadership and communities. And so you think, what's an editorial community? So that includes all of our C-suite communities, so CIO network, CMO, CHRO, and it also includes 30 under 30 franchise, Forbes Women, Forbes the Culture, which is black and brown entrepreneurship. So the reason I mention that is I think it starts with understanding who your audience is. And first of all, my audience is never the people I cover. It's knowing why people are coming to us when you don't have a newsroom of 2,200 people. What matters is to be the curator of what matters. And so it's to be able to connect the dots and to be able to look at the world news and make a choice as to where can we add some intelligence. If we get access to credible founders, can we actually do profiles? And there has to always be tension in a profile because otherwise it's just a rewritten press release. It has to be linked back to the zeitgeist. And I think there's a reason why a lot of journalists, a lot of entrepreneurs think about ADD and dyslexia. It is ultimately about connecting the dots. And that is where I get the most value. I think most of us do is we gravitate toward people that they're rooted in truth they're reporters, but they help to make sense of where the world's going and take what's out there and make us smarter. When you said it's easy, maybe that's a consequence of being smarter and richer, I think can mean many things like impact, but smarter is a good North Star, isn't it? That so what factor in the marginal story, it eliminates a lot of the iterative stuff that is just noise, but it's an art as much as a science. How do you write anything when the proverbial millennial Gen Zer is busy texting and TikToking and has an attention span for anything in writing that is measured in seconds, not minutes. I think how people consume content doesn't necessarily impact the collective knowledge that they have. Like, I love live journalism. I call it live journalism. Some people say it's events, but I think that experience of being in a room with somebody and meeting 
Elon Musk is a cool, interesting guy. My son knows a lot about Elon Musk. He's never read Ashley Vance's book, but he's consumed content around these founders that he finds interesting. And if anything, he has probably a more complex, interesting view because maybe he's more into the Dogecoin part of the equation than I would ever care to know about. I guess in that respect, I step back and I think that nobody... I know is getting all their news from TikTok. I think that they are connecting the dots. They just happen to be getting their news perhaps more in often multi-platform bite-sized ways, but doesn't mean they can't emerge with the same understanding of what's happening. Did you call events live journalism? Is that the term you used? Yeah, I love that. And it resonates because there's so much online education. It's possible to learn so much from so many sources, most of them free. So why be in person? And now, obviously, through our COVID era, that's become even clearer about why do that. And there's got to be something. And it is the experience. It's the shared experience in real time that cannot be replicated. Yeah. In a way, why there's a concert. Musicians, bands make all their money from live performances, unless you're Taylor Swift or someone like that, because the streaming revenue is so tiny. So actually, it's interesting to hear you say that about journalism. I don't know if that's where the money is, but that's where the energy is, I think. Well, I think often, like, what do we want? I remember I used to go to school and there'd be these guys, I'm going to say it's true, it was guys, they would carry The Economist under their arm and they'd never actually read it, but they wanted to be the kind of person that carried The Economist under their arm. And look, they're still like, I remember it piling up in my bathroom going, oh yeah, I should read that piece on Zambia. But I think it's partly that you want to feel like you're in a place with your peers or your aspirational peers. That's why 30 under 30 is so powerful. It's why we did 3050. It was 50 over 50 women. It was about mentoring. It was about getting together. It's a unique experience that can't be replicated. It's that you're forming connections that matter, but you're also getting recognition for what you've done well. And I think that ability to have a seat at the table and have a voice ask questions to be part of the conversation, like that matters. I think it's hubris to think that we're on high just dispensing knowledge like holier than thou. The smartest thing we do is to convene communities of people who know more than we do that are on the front lines and help create incredible conversations that make everybody not just bigger, but they form connections and they do things that might not have been possible if not for that experience. The only thing I'd say with narrative, when I say live journalism, I think the narrative arc of events is important to me where there's too many events out there with talking heads and it's like a menu from a diner. It's like Greek food, Italian food. It should be to me like a story and you should be going into this feeling like, where are we on climate change? Like the now, because you can't put sunscreen on your grapes forever, winemaker in California. You go in with that story and you start to populate your event the way you'd populate a story of who are the characters I want in the room and who are the people that would have interesting conversations because they're on different sides of this issue. Those to me are the best events. There's a serendipity factor, but there's also a purpose in being there. Right. So what I'm hearing is there's a choreography to the event as opposed to Ideally. a collection of interesting or smart people, which is also good. But when there's yeah. a choreography, there's a director at work that's making it fit together. It doesn't scale well, to your point, right? Like what scales video, print, like scaling experiences, unless your Disney World is a different exercise. So it's a 
different kind of community you tend to be gathering. But the benefit is, whether well, it's a branding benefit, there's a networking connection benefit, and maybe there's a reason why people will go buy magazines and subscribe and do all this other stuff, because this is part of the story. This is the icing on the cake. Although I'm not really sure about the right pricing model from a business point of view, how you would do that. Yeah, it's hard, because you also want to bring new voices to the table. Like, there's lots of people. I used to interview Donald Trump, and he was one of those guys. If we're doing a, what's your favorite cookie? <laughs> Who would call me back in two minutes? Donald Trump. Chocolate chip. You know, it's like no piece of the press was too small for our former president. And that was a delightful thing for a journalist because you would get the calls returned. Now, I don't want to get into the trajectory of how we became fake news, but it's easy to call on the people who know how to work a room, give a good quote. Yeah, It's the other people we need to hear from. That's what's been missing. You mentioned 30 under 30 a couple of times. I'm a little bit familiar with it. I've interviewed a couple of people for this podcast that are entrepreneurs that have been part of that. When they mention it, well, there you go. They've got the company shirt. They're proud of it. That's good. Yeah. First of all, because not everybody knows what it is. What is it? It was started actually by my boss, Randall Lane, who won't listen to this, so I can give him a shout out. I've known for years. And it was 30 people under the age of 30 who are the next generation of innovators, founders. And the thing is, we do about 10 lists. So we have the artists, we have people who are in the biotech space. And what's happened is it's created an incredible community of people. It's this very rich and vibrant alumni network because these are people who are trying to change the world. Not everybody, of course, you're in your 20s. Some people, they end up doing something else. But a lot of them do go on to be the unicorns and the founders and the influencers. And they often are completely at the time. Like We had Jack Harlow this year. There he was at the Grammys. That is a robust community. And actually, Forbes, the culture sort of grew out of that community, which is black and brown entrepreneurs, the 30 or 30. And it was that shared experience of being a black entrepreneur and people coming together and sort of talk. I think it's a robust franchise because it's aspirational and it's a fascinating source of stories. Right. Jessica Wolf is one of the people that I think she had a role even at Forbes in some form. She went to Columbia Business School, is working on a startup right now. Carly Stein, I'm not sure if she was one. I interviewed her and she has the bee company that's making healthy products based on bee pollen and other ingredients. Well, and you're proud of it because it's journalistic. One of the things I've noticed about the billionaires is people don't realize as much that there really are no brands that know more about measuring wealth of the billionaires than Forbes. Like that was, I've only been at Forbes since last May. But I think that you measure it's investigative journalism, like they're measuring the wealth of these people against their will. So it's kind of like, <laughs> that's interesting, right? Like we knew the wealth of the oligarchs. It is a huge deal to get a wealth file. Yeah. It's a rite of passage at Forbes because it's classic investigative journalism. Follow the money. It's nobody sitting there laying out their wealth for you. That's what they want you to think. It's not what we end up publishing. So it's all about the journalism. That's interesting. Although I would assume our guest, Donald Trump, would be happy to tell you about his wealth or probably did and wanted to be on that list. Look, I've been in his office and it was, yeah, you present a building with your name on it. No, it doesn't take too much business education to say, yes, but sir, do you own the building or did you just license your name? So how you count your assets, as we know, can lead to very different results. Certainly had run-ins, not myself, but my colleagues with President Trump over how disconnect between the wealth we calculated and what he said he had. Not necessarily a surprise. Let's talk about the media business. Mm -hmm. Forbes is one of many, and boy, it's been not just Forbes, but everyone's been beaten up for a while. But I was thinking, 
what are the other forms that are out there? Of course, you mentioned right, Wall Street Journal and Fortune, Business Week, the FT, maybe The Economist. There are places like that. They've been around. That's kind of the old garden way, then they're the most prestigious. But then I'm thinking, well, LinkedIn publishes a ton of really interesting content. Yeah, I have two friends there. I have a couple of friends. You know, Jesse Hempel's a good friend, Dan Roth. So there's a lot of really top-notch journalists at LinkedIn now. Yeah, you got that. I mean, Business Insider, a little bit different scenario, but that will start from scratch, Mm -hmm. which is pretty interesting. Then there's the places like Substack and Medium. They're not exactly the same, of course, but that's a place where you can publish essays and create a subscription model for it as well. How do you compete in this type of world? I probably didn't mention. Yeah, there's so many. I think, first of all, Forbes had an interesting model and that predates me, but it was one of the first companies to go truly digital and have this contributor network. So I mentioned the newsroom Bloomberg has of like, say, 2,200 reporters. Well, Forbes 2,200 contributors. And in some ways that on the one hand can give you the largest newsroom in the country, or it gives you an incredible expert network that can weigh in on the news in a different way. That ecosystem, you mentioned Substack. So how do we increasingly treat those contributors as stakeholders and leverage the best of what they do? That's something I think about. I did a series earlier this year called Scale Up, where we had Reed Hoffman and Gary Vaynerchuk and Tony Schwartz. And Tony's a contributor, but what is Tony known for? One of the things is the Energy Project. Like that is helping to deploy the talents of the people in our ecosystem in a different way is one way we compete. I think that one of the things I think about with Forbes is what do we own and where can we expand? And this was an issue. This is something we thought about a lot. When Business Week was acquired by Bloomberg, I was part of that transition. There was a Wall Street brand buying a company that was really more about the C-suite. How do you leverage these new properties to kind of take what you do well, which in our case is the founders, the entrepreneurs, and bring that sort of disruptor into the room of the C-suites. I think that intersection is interesting, but we can't be all things to all people. I think that's ultimately, to me, one of the key points. Journalism, in my mind, it all starts with talent. What did the first thing I do when I got to Forbes? I tried to recruit Jenna McGregor from the Washington Post because I work with her at Business Week. And I know her well. Jenna's on my team. Lucky me. And so editorial personalities, we're not dancing on TikTok. It's people who have earned a reputation for delivering value. And that's the heart and soul of our brand is the people that we have out there reporting the news and then creating some ecosystem support around that and knowing the value we can bring to our different audiences. I don't know if I'm sounding like a survey person there, but it's like, that. <laughs> I think it's like, tell interesting stories about people who matter. Tell me what's around the corner and give me a chance to recognize the excellence in me. Don't just treat me as a passive audience. Let me bring what I have to the table. And I think you've got an interesting brand. Let me ask you about the contributors. I actually was a contributor for a while and then... We weren't paying you enough? I don't think you paid me anything, actually. (laughs) And then the BBC started. Jennifer Merritt was brought on to BBC Global and created that. Because I was such a global audience, I kind of liked that. A lot of people had read that. Yeah, I did BBC last night, actually. Yeah, I never did Substack, even though they were recruiting me. Because then in the end, first of all, I'm not a journalist. Not that I don't want to make any money. I live in America. I'm a business school professor. But I'm not doing it for money, and I don't really care about that nearly as much. That would make you a great journalist. (laughs) That's very funny. But here's the question for these contributors. And it became an issue with Substack earlier this year as well. And it's, of course, a very big issue for a giant like Facebook. How do you regulate what people say? 
So for example, Substack, there were some people that were columnists or essayists or whatever they call them that were saying that the vaccines didn't work and said all kinds of crazy things. And they didn't regulate it because they didn't see that as their job. What did you say? 200 contributors, but this is something that could be leveraged and you could have more and more. Do you manage those people? I mean, do you regulate what they say? And if you do, how do you do that? Because people don't want to be regulated. It's actually a hard challenge, you know, because Facebook has to manage this. First of all, you have to apply to be a contributor and then people have swim lanes, they call them. So it's like, what are you coming to contribute? And we don't want people who are nothing against PR. I've gotten some of my best stories from people in PR, but you don't want to create anything that gives the opportunity too often for a conflict of interest, like you're shilling for your clients. We tend to gravitate toward people who have some expertise in their field and they bring that expertise to the table Mm -hmm. and it's complementary and it's something that's in our ecosystem of what brings value. And then people get kicked out if something happens that's suspect, nefarious. You get deprived of the privilege of being a contributor. And then some people are incredible resources who make more money than I do because they found a sweet spot. They're prolific and they generate a lot of traffic because they're brands that matter. Earlier, you mentioned Justice Thomas. So I have to ask you, that was a number of years ago that you interviewed him. I don't know whether you had occasion to interview him more recently. Obviously, he's been in the news because of lots of reasons, including his wife, Ginny, and being part of the group trying to overturn the last election. But what was your general impression of Justice Thomas? Because people are very curious about him now more than ever before, I think. I remember being in his office and he had this black and white drawing and it was of a man kind of leaning over looking utterly exhausted, like hands on the floor, just the light sucked out. And it was the biggest image in his office. And so, well, Justice Thomas, that's an interesting piece of art. He goes, that's me. Every day I look out and I see people walking and I wish I could be one of them. And I thought, what an odd thing to say when you're in the highest core of the land. It was that he says, you can't look at it that way. Impression number one was that he felt hard done by and isolated. That came out. But on the plus side, I'm not anti thought I don't share his politics, but once at Holy Cross, he was incredibly warm and funny. He and my husband got along so well. He was cracking jokes. He felt like he was a place he belonged and nobody was judging him at this particular dinner we were at. And what a delightful side of him to see, because then I went to see him speak. I think it was a Heritage Foundation. And it felt like he was walking in a room where it wasn't his people, like it kind of became once again. So I suppose my interactions with him, with Ginny Thomas, was this sense of the world being against you, like when in doubt, being isolated. And I can't psychoanalyze him. There are people who are Supreme Court experts who have far more intelligence on what he's brought to the court and why he doesn't speak and this and that. But he loved Holy Cross. He thought that was the perfect place for him at that point in his life. Deeply resented, I believe, Neil when he there because he felt like he was constantly questioned and diminished, that people felt he'd gotten there because through being black and that made him feel cheapened. So again, interesting character, somebody who wields a lot of power and what a complex way to be looking at the highest office compared to Ms. Bader Ginsburg or anybody else. It's another testament to the fact that what you have is not as important as how you perceive what you have and where you are. People on the outside really have no idea about what it's really like. And what it's like is completely subjective, like everything else, right? It's how you perceive it, how you live it. You've interviewed so many really interesting people. Do you have any that are in your absolute favorites over the years? I mean, there's probably a lot that you really enjoyed, but. You know, I have to say, I've interviewed Curtis 50 Cent Chats. That's a weird one to say, but I loved, it's so hard to pick. 
I loved interviewing him because I felt like he was funny and interesting and curious when I first interviewed him at the peak of his power. And I found it so interesting. I just found him so likable and enjoyed the conversation. But the people who stand out don't always stand out for the right reasons. Sometimes they stand out because there's such a disconnect between who they think they are and the way they run their companies or their brands. So I'm being cryptic on that one because it was very hard to cover story. Very hard. So I remember doing a cover story on George David of United Technology. It was even called the unsung CEO, like how he outperformed GE. And the line that stood out to him was one line I wrote, if George David slaps you on the back, it's to dislaunch food, which was kind of like my way of saying, not a man of the people. We're saying he's Plano, Texas, and he's talking about labor arbitrage and it's just kind of the way he grew up, a bit of a philosopher king. And it said something about the way he ran his company. The reason I mentioned is that line was his only takeaway. It was like he obsessed over that one line in a story that was otherwise great. I remember doing a story on Hank Greenberg's sons, Evan and Jeff Greenberg, when I first got to the U.S. They may have pulled a lot of ads, maybe a million dollars of ads from Business Week. I can't remember, but I distinctly remember that they were not happy we were writing about the sons. Yet a couple of years later, Mr. Greenberg called me and I reminded him of this fact. He says, you know, but you're fair. And that meant a lot to me that somebody could pull their ads. A million dollars was so angry, but yet they were never surprised by what they read. That's my philosophy is nobody should ever be surprised by what they read. They should have a chance to answer in the fullest way possible what the story is about. Doesn't change the story, but it does change the story. That- sure. What a gift. I've had a chance to interview so many people. I love getting a chance to interview incredibly successful people and see them as human beings. And I love a chance to interview people who are complex, interesting people like Hezbollah in Kashmir. They were teenage guys with their aunt in Scarborough, like to realize the way in which we're all really at hate to say Russian mothers love their babies too. It's dating me, but that we are all complex human beings who are not wholly evil or wholly amazing. Yeah. What do you do or did you do when you knew the person you're interviewing was really not telling you the truth, which probably happens a lot. I mean, I had that when I was doing some of my interviews for why smart executives fail, interviewing people that really messed up. It was a little tricky. I just keep asking around the edges, around the edges. And then eventually I'd just go with it because they were letting me quote everything I said. That was kind of the ground rules. And then I was able to tell the story about how this person was telling a story that just had no basis. In fact, they were creating fake news to use the modern language. But is there a technique you've used or do you confront people? How have you done that? First of all, I think that a great interview is a conversation. Like you go in prepared, right? You don't want to be one of these people like, hey, Howard Schultz, what do you do, right? I give people I interview the respect because it's genuine of being interested in them, interested in what they do. I don't mind asking tough questions. I don't ask it in a low ranger kind of way. I did a lot of college debating and I didn't go for the ad hominem. Ted Cruz did, but ah. <laughs> I will ask them at the time. I won't ask it in a way that I'm a peer, but just, you know, hey, how do you equate what you just said with A, B, C, and D? But I think the biggest thing is when somebody asks answers is you ask the next question based on what they said. It's so painfully obvious, but the best interviews are about listening. You know that. Boy, is that ever right. <laughs> if what people are saying isn't directing the direct, it's a conversation and informing your intelligence, you're not really interviewing that. You're coming up with a list of questions. Anybody could do that. 
I think I listen and I think that I convey that I'm genuinely interested and I'm not out to get them. But I also always make it clear that you're not my customer. Help me help you. But my customers over there, my duties to them to tell, like I'm writing about you. I have to tell them the truth. That's my duty. So help me. If you're not telling me the truth, somebody else will because I'm not going to do a single source story. Then I'll call you back. Then you'll have to tell the truth or reinforce the lie, one or the other. Does that help? I don't even know if there's art to it. It would be really fascinating to talk to some of the world's best interviewers or people really, really experienced. And I think Larry King back in the day used to do that. He considered himself among that group. Maybe he was, I don't know. But he would talk to others as well. And Howard Stern, I don't know if you listen to Howard Stern, but it's probably been 10 years that he's had these long form interviews. They are fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. Here's what makes a great interviewer, in my opinion. And you've got it and I've got it. First of all, you know, you come in with the knowledge when you understand the business landscape or you're a pattern thinker, you can draw from the zeitgeist, you can draw from all kinds of different experiences to connect with somebody. So it's knowing when to pick a part of your brain that's relevant to the conversation to drive in a different direction. So I think having that 30,000 foot view is actually very helpful. And I think humor helps. I'm not going to diss dentists. I think they have the best conventions on the planet, but you know, it's not medicinal. It's like it's <laughs> great storytelling. I'm making people smarter, but I'm not curing cancer. I'm enjoying the company of the person I'm with. And because there's a delight factor and that also I think factors in is you can tell when somebody's interested and you can tell when they're coming with an agenda and your character A and you're there to fill that role in their plot. This is so closely aligned with how I think about it and what I do, at least with the podcast. And I do interviewing for other reasons, different than yours, obviously, because it's closer to your full time. Well, not now you're managing people, but still you've got to listen. And I've been on so many podcasts and you just know they're going through the list and they're going through the motions. And I have found when I do these podcasts, my vision is of a dinner party where we don't know each other and we're seated next to each other. And you talk to people and you get into like a really good, cool conversation. And in the end, you don't know everything about the other person. You don't have any list that you're checking off everything. But wherever you went is interesting. And maybe you went on a deep dive on something much longer than maybe you would have planned ahead of time. It doesn't matter. You can edit it out. <laughs> no, I never edit it out. I have the ego-driven assumption that what I find interesting, my listeners will find interesting as well. And I think that's why people come. If it's not the case, then so be it. I do the best I can. And the truth is I enjoy these conversations so much. I started doing this podcast for the art of conversation. And the fact that other people actually care to listen is, is a huge bonus, really enjoyable bonus. I have to ask you this question that I don't have any clue how to do this. How does something go viral? Is there a strategy? Is there a method? Are there techniques to help an article, let's say, or a piece or an interview go viral? How does that happen? Because it happens periodically. And I just don't know how it happens. Unless somebody's super famous to start with, which is a different story. We're doing a whole initiative around the creator economy, transform retailing influencers. Yeah, I love that. There's a shift. I was with Lauren Gray, who I didn't know my kids knew, but every time she snaps a photo, a million people like it. It's like the weirdest thing. But I think certain be first or be best is one of the things. I'll give you an example. Ray Dalio, who's not an undercover man, you know, sat down with my colleague, Manit Jun. I knew that Alan Marie was coming out the next day because, of course, you know, Ray Dalio was talking, he's talking to everybody. So right. you distill out what's interesting. that People would care about Ray Dalio. Get out first before Alan Murray, sorry, Alan. And it got like 120,000 hits, which is a lot of views for a Ray Dalio talking about his book kind of story. So that's where certain people open their mouths, like Mm -hmm. Elon Musk, we care, right? 
Sure. The things that then go surprisingly viral, I do think there's a certain level of personality to it. There's a certain level, like the stories that go the most viral are the personal stories. Often, right, somebody writing about, my husband died two years ago. I wrote like just that, because I'm a journalist. I mean, I wrote some mm. piece about all the waste that was the hospice stuff that I couldn't give back and write at the start of COVID. That piece got so many hits on Bloomberg. I wrote it in an hour. It was personal. Yeah. So I think we connect as human beings and we can never forget the fact that we connect faces and emotions in our lives. And when something resonates in our life or we feel it's a piece of news you want to share, that's what makes it viral. It's that art of passing it on is good. When we put ourselves out, when we are vulnerable, it's not a demonstration. It's real. It's authentic. And your example, and you're writing about your husband, I think is a great example. Rachel Feinzig, who you probably know as well from the Wall Street Journal, she wrote about pregnancy and giving birth and the challenges involved and has written about many things. Really great journalist, I think. And that was the one that went viral more than almost anything else because it was personal. It was about something people could connect with. They could understand it. Yeah. I don't worry if something's going to go viral. Steve Shepard, who's one of the great editors, I had the privilege to work with at Business Week, and his mantra was always death to the marginal story, which I've ripped off and used myself many a time. It's a good match. It's like, who cares? So what? Time is valuable. So somebody comes to me and I'm giving them like a second day version of something that a me too piece to the New York Times. I'm not going to last very long. If I'm going and they've got like a profile of this young guy from Bulls and like, oh, I've heard about him. What's he like? And I'm the first person to get and it's really interesting. Then I'm going to start to associate that person with interesting stuff. And in that respect, what you just said is similar to what is true in my business, which is about impact. It's all about having an impact on people and how they think and their ideas and their life and how they breathe. And that's all that counts. And anything that's more incremental is not worth the time. Let me get to my last question because we've probably gone longer than we said we would. But I feel like there's a lot of Diane Brady we're leaving. <laughs> we're leaving in the cutting room floor. We're not getting to. <laughs> it scraps the surface, more surface. I like to ask about advice, but it's advice to yourself. If you can magically go back in time to when you were, say, I don't know, 20 years old, and you can cozy up to the 20-year-old Diane and say, you know, if there's one thing you want to know, it's one thing you want to do, it's one thing you want to be alert to, something you learned over the years that maybe you had no way of or did not know when you were 20, what might that be? It's funny. I actually think that I was pretty good at this. I would get stressed. You know, I was a bit of a workaholic. I kind of still am, let's face it. But I guess the thing I would go back, I would take more risks. I think I've taken risks like I've lived in Africa, but there's a certain feeling like you're on the precipice of financial doom. One thing I admire about entrepreneurs is that ability to fail, get back up, and the stakes aren't high. Every time I've taken a risk, like going to Hong Kong was no job, I got a job. I came to New York, I got a job. Like, it all will work out and take more risks is advice I'd give to my younger self. The advice I'd give to my current self, which I give to my team is have fun. The joy factor of journalists, we're not at Goldman Sachs, we're not at McKinsey. Boy, did I love the healthcare at McKinsey. Yeah, I like it at Forbes too, but still. Boy, they know how to treat people well in terms of their alumni network and stuff. But it's that we get to slip under the velvet ropes. We get to meet cool people. Like the joy factor of our job is what keeps us here. And we have to deliver that to the people on our team. Like my number one customer is the employee. That's the talent where it's like our athletes. And are we giving them 
an incredible team? Are we giving them support? Are we giving them the license to go do what they do best? So we don't drown them in minutiae because it's very easy to do in journalism these days. There's like 17 platforms and 14. Don't forget in our heart and soul, we're storytellers and we're truth. It's like there's a joy to journalism that sustains you. And it's that joy of discovery. It's that joy of impact. It's the joy of being on the front lines of change. And I think when we forget that, it comes at a cost to product we produce customers not happy, which is our audience. So that part is important to me. So if there's a chance to go to Botswana and send somebody, it's cool. I did an offsite last week. I loved it. We got together. It was Forks on Fifth. We had dinner. Like I am very acutely aware of the fact that happiness is the connective tissue that I can create around you. I can't bring happiness. The more I can create conditions to be the wind at somebody's back and their coach, that's, I guess, advice to my current self, which you didn't ask, but you know what? You gave it to me. (laughs) And I love it because it would apply to professors too and any other creative groups, almost on any type of professional group. In some ways you get out of the way, let creative people be creative. Don't forget that that's what it is. And sometimes on our side, we forget that and we get into all kinds of details and you don't need to do that. So that's great. What is that car commercial? Life is short, but it's wide or something. I think the anti-mame, you know, like life's a banquet and most poor suckers are starving. There is something to be said for that. We're not here for that long and we can all have a great impact, but the journey is, this is it. We're not all reaching for some end destination. This is the path we're on. That's the end in itself. How are we using this time? And so. That's philosophical <laughs> to yeah, whether I build my team might say, hey, yeah, well, stop fast me for that. <laughs> <laughs> so then let's not worry about those deadlines. But I think you're right. You got to create joy where we are because who knows what's around the corner, especially in the modern world we're in today. And those of us who are doing a job, a career, a passion, a pastime that we love, that we enjoy, is a great gift. Yeah, it is. I it thank is. my lucky stars every day. Exactly. And I do too. So I feel very privileged and I've dipped in and out of journalism. I always come back to it. Lucky me. Not on wood, long as I can do it. Diane, well, lucky me that you agreed to do the podcast with me because I love this conversation. Very interesting. Lots of lessons and insights and storytelling along the way. Diane Brady, thank you so much. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Sidcast. I am really excited to be bringing you season four and very appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the series and you will never miss a single new episode. The Sitcast is growing. We have more listeners than ever before and more stories to share. This idea I had four years ago for real conversations with real people, informal and informative. Well, it's taking off and that is thanks to you. I welcome all feedback and would love to hear from you. If you have any questions, suggestions for guests, or any suggestions at all, please contact me via our website, www.thesidcast.com or email me directly, sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune into another one of our episodes and please consider giving us a five-star review and especially share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The Sidcast is produced by the Podcast Laundry Production Company.